Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Hey, this is me, the Grouch. Oscar the Grouch. Here's a little joke for you. Okay, here, get ready. Brace yourself. What do you call cows who have no legs? You ready for the answer? Ground beef. <laughs> uh, never mind. I never liked you anyway. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Oscar the Grouch. I'm not mm. sure how we tricked him into that. That'll help break the ice. <laughs> we will hear more from him later. Plus, we speak with another New York icon, Blondie. But this week's show isn't all about the Big Apple. Coming up, Danish director Thomas Vinterberg, British musical duo Public Service Broadcasting, and Iranian-American comic Maz Jabra. But first, let's get this party started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Tom Brady, of course, a Patriots quarterback, suspended without pay for the first four games of the 2015 regular season. This week's crash of an Amtrak passenger train in Philadelphia. The final episode of The Late Show with David Letterman will air Wednesday. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Anna Sale. She is the host of the WMYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. It's excellent. Anna, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? And this is a really cool one. I, I saw students at Birmingham City University have developed a cane for the blind that comes with facial recognition software to alert you when you're near someone who you know. Oh. oh. Does... It, it works from up to 10 meters away, yeah. and there's an SD memory card with images that you can bank into your cane, and then you get ah. a little vibration when you get close to someone who your cane recognizes. Does it tell you who they are, I guess, some in your ear or something? There's a little earpiece. There's some, there's some alert. Very cool. Although 10 feet is not enough space to avoid the person <laughs> if you, if <laughs> you don't true. want to interact with them. <laughs> oh, no, it's Bob. <laughs> they need to work in the radius. All the mother-in-laws will be removed. <laughs> from the face cane memory cards, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the other thing. If, if someone could get upset if you're not on their facial recognition list. Mm-hmm. Like, are like, you kidding me? Yeah, I'm not on your speed <laughs> dial. It's basically the modern version. Right, all these, I, these social problems. I think this could be great for the for the non-visually impaired because, you know, when you go to a party and someone's like, hey, hi, how are you? And you can't remember who they are, this thing could just buzz <laughs> and tell you. That would be very helpful. <laughs> and sure. also the paparazzi could just buy a few of these and plant them around themselves and just hang out. And when they vibrated, they would know they have someone. Yes, the technology for the blind helping the paparazzi get their shots. <laughs> I'm always trying to, I'm always looking out for the paparazzi. <laughs> we all are, you know, when it comes down to it. Yeah. Anna Sale, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our crisp, slightly oaky history lesson with booze. Tasty. First, the history part. This week back in 1849, New Yorkers showed just how much they disliked a production of Macbeth. And not by writing angry letters to the Times. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the 1840s, the rivalry between actors William McCready and Edwin Forrest turned... Dramatic. They were considered two of the best actors around. Both had huge success starring in Shakespeare plays. But MacReady was British, classically trained and subtle, while Forrest was America's first homegrown Shakespeare star, self-taught and brassy. At first, the two were pals. 
But that changed when a London audience hissed at Forrest during a performance of King Lear. Forrest blamed a jealous MacReady for hiring the hissers. So he went to see MacReady play Hamlet and hissed at him. And when MacReady toured the U.S., Forrest followed him around, playing his own shows in every city on the tour, just to draw away his rival's audience. To New Yorkers, this wasn't some silly squabble. It was symbolic. See, working-class nativists in the city championed anything made in America, like Forrest. They resented the upper class and their love of things British, like MacReady. So when the two actors staged competing productions of Macbeth in New York, everyone expected trouble. They got it. On MacReady's opening night, nativists in the balcony pelted him with shoes and rotten eggs. They were so loud, he had to mime his lines. And at the next performance, over 10,000 protesters showed up, bombarded the theater with stones, and tried to set it on fire. The state militia was called. Shots were fired. When the smoke cleared, dozens were dead and more injured. It was a clear illustration of the growing class divide in America, and probably the only performance of Macbeth with more blood offstage than on. So that was the history lesson, and after that, I'm going to need a drink. I'm here with Frank Kayafa. He is the bar manager at the Vault at Faf's, which is on Broadway, five blocks away from where the riots took place. Frank, you seem like you're too young to have been there for the riot. Yes, I have. <laughs> so, Frank, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, in Victorian England, cobblers were very popular. A cobbler. So that was a sort of cocktail. I think of it as like a, a dessert or, or a sweet. Uh, no, it's a wine-based cocktail, usually sherry or port with just some fruit and sugar. Although it was an American drink invented here, cobblers were popular there as well. So this is actually an interesting synthesis of the two cultures that were rioting at the time. Right, exactly at the time. All right, so uh, what are the ingredients in, in your cobbler? Start this recipe with cubed white peaches or whatever peaches in season. So I'm surprised you're not using rotten tomatoes since that's... Yeah, right. and rotten eggs. Okay, uh, first we're going to use two and a quarter ounces of Hudson Four Green Bourbon. Okay. An ounce of Bordeaux, which the English call claret. And which the Americans wouldn't call anything at all. Right. They didn't drink wine as good as this, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. We have some sugar and a couple of dashes of house-made peach bitters. All right. Some ice. Take a healthy amount of mint. We slap it against our hands to wake it up. Is that a New York thing? Like, what's the matter with you? No, <laughs> but it could be. All right, so we wake up the mint, stick it in there. And then we top it with powdered sugar. All right, I'm going to go for it. Oh, man, that is fantastic. If, you know, we, this story is about a fight that happened at the theater, but have you actually had to break up fights in your time behind a bar? More than a few, and in a lot of different ways. What is the most common fight over here? Well, th today, they fight over sports teams. So who would be the nativists, the Yankees or the Mets? My team? I'm a Mets fan. But uh, I'm not ready to throw down over it. <laughs> 
And people, quick note, since we taped that interview, the vault at Pfaff's has closed. Alas. You can catch Frank now at the Waldorf Astoria. Not a lot of riots in that place. Just a handful ever, I think. <laughs> also, you can find all our drink recipes on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. That's also where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which delivers them ever so peacefully into your inbox. So now, this party needs some music. True, and here with that are Jay Wilgoose Esquire and Rigglesworth, pseudonyms of the duo behind the British band Public Service Broadcasting. They are known for pairing groovy instrumental tunes with archival sound clips. Their latest album, The Race for Space, was, not surprisingly, inspired by the space race. Here they are to DJ your dinner party. Hello, I'm Jay Wilgoose Esquire. And I am Rigglesworth. We are Public Service Broadcasting. And this is our dinner party soundtrack. Now, the first track we would like to play is by The Walkmen, and it is called The Rat. I like to give incredibly awkward dinner parties <laughs> where the music is totally inappropriate, so I thought something really fast and uh, with a sort of hint of desperation and depression about it. I think one of the lyrics is, when I used to go out, I knew everyone I saw. Now I go out alone if I go out at all. <laughs> this, this is a great party. <laughs> when I used to go out, I would know everyone that I saw. Now I go out alone if I go out at all. I first heard it 11 years ago on the radio, and so I had to hurriedly write down the lyrics and then sort of look it up on Google later when I got home and loved this band ever since. And what I really liked about the Walkmen was they were kind of no-nonsense. They didn't have band hair, you know, they didn't sort of... You've definitely got band hair. I have not got band hair. You have got band hair. You have band hair if anyone has band hair. You've got, like, big, curly... ever touch my hair. ...uncontrollable... You're the one with the... You've got rubbish hair. The next song that we've chosen is David Bowie. And it is called Varsava, Warsaw, I I never know how to say it, which is a good reason for picking it, so I can embarrass myself in front of all these people at this dinner party. It's, I think, the first track on side two of Low, one of the best albums ever made, and side B is just kind of slightly out there, synth, mostly instrumental noodling, which is just an extraordinary thing for one of the sort of biggest pop acts of his time to do. Nobody does that kind of thing anymore. Who does that now? You don't see Madonna doing that. I just love the unexpectedness of that sound just coming in from nowhere. It's just like, I know what this track needs. It needs a great big hum. I've left by now. Yeah, the party's definitely not going quite to plan. (laughs) Uh, You probably burnt the chicken I prepared for you as well. Oh, yeah, that did happen at a barbecue, actually. That's a real story, and I'm still bitter about it. I'm still bitter about it. I mean, I went to his barbecue, and he didn't have any condiments. You could have not burnt my chicken. Bring condiments. You could have not burnt my chicken. Anyway, I think we should move on. So, track three, let's actually play something that is vaguely suitable for a dinner party for once, which is uh, Marie Queenie Lyons' Your Thing Ain't No Good Without My Thing. Which I believe was on the album Soul Fever, uh, I think released in 1970. 
classic funk track, I think. I don't think it's particularly well known. I do enjoy a good funk song. Very fun to play as well. I think hopefully by this point all has been forgiven and yeah they're saying finally got something we can kind of tap our feet to under the table. On to our final choice and something I would never ever do at a real dinner party I have to say this would be the He's lying. He always puts his own music on. I definitely do not do that. Very loudly. Uh, But yeah we have to. We're contractually obliged to. So let's let's play Gagarin by us. This is Moscow. This is Moscow. This is our tribute to the first man in space. Joyful and triumphant and a bit more kind of exuberant. Not unlike the reception Riggles and I get at every airport we fly into. Major Gagarin Yuri Alexievich. The world's first cosmonaut. The first to open the door into the unknown. The first to step over the threshold of our homeland. That song is now my jam, a dinner party soundtrack courtesy of music duo Public Service Broadcasting. Their latest album is called The Race for Space. All right, coming up, acclaimed Danish filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg reflects on the vicissitudes of fate, and we get etiquette advice from a puppet. It's a wide-ranging conversation. Certainly is. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comic Maz Gibrani talks about the time he was racially profiled at the Comedy Store. Mm. And I kibitz about Kanish. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, formerly a couple and still the creative forces behind the legendary band Blondie. In the 70s and 80s, they churned out a string of hits that we probably don't need to list. The Tide is High. That is one of them. Rapture, sure. one of the first pop hits to feature a rap song. You're listing them right now. Well, I think we needed to. <laughs> the band goes on tour this summer. This month, though, Chris's photographs of Debbie and the rock legends they hung out with are on display at the Paul Smith store in L.A. They're taken from Chris's photo book called The Negative. When the three of us met, I started by asking Chris about the club gig in 74 where he met Debbie. She was fronting a band called The Stilettos. I remember how struck I was by Debbie and her presence and stuff. And I, you know, I, I can't really remember the musicality of it that much. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't strike you as the best band that it had ever been? It was okay, but uh, Debbie was really great, even back then in her, before she had achieved her final form. <laughs> what about her performance do you remember? Uh, Not much. I remember you had the silver <laughs> outfit on. You had like the I had a silver sweater, yeah. Silver sweater, and yeah. she had short dark hair, and she was just really striking, you know. Did you have your camera with no, you at uh-uh. that time? No. Back in those days, unlike today, where everybody is has access to some sort of photography at every second of their lives, when I would go to concerts, I would frequently say, "Well, I'm either going to bring my camera and deal with that, or I'm going to watch the show." Yeah. So I would often opt to watch the show. And therefore, huge chunks of history are lost the, forever. And, and to my memory, also, um. because the photographs enhance my failing memory. Do you, Debbie, remember that meeting, meeting Chris for the first time at that show? Oh, yeah, I do. He was very nice, and 
clearly. I think we were talking in the stairwell yeah, maybe after the show. Yeah, it was pretty um, brief. It was just a slimy little bar. And, they um, mostly were in New York back then. I thought that Chris looked really great. Then later on, we needed a bass player. Chris you know, joined the stilettos, and that's how we started working together. Did you start taking photos of Debbie immediately? Pretty early on, yeah. I started getting, I don't know if it's serious is the right word, but I, I started more actively taking photographs around 1968. And I had been in art school in School of Visual Arts it was just what I did, and she was there, and she was my girlfriend, and we just were taking pictures, you know? Yeah. I, I say to kids now, you know, all you guys are taking pictures of your friends, you never know where it's going to wind up in 40 years, you know? Archive that stuff. Yeah. Um, you say in your introduction to the book, Ashley Debbie, that Chris is a voyeur, which would imply that you didn't mind being gazed at. Where do you think that comes from? Not everybody's comfortable with that. Uh, you know, it's, very, it's funny because it's a two-sided thing. I felt at ease, I felt comfortable with Chris, and it was sort of funny watching him, you know? So you were watching him as well? Because he was sort of, he would talk to himself and struggle around, you know, trying to get it right, and he would work very hard. He was a perfectionist. I think there was a certain sexual content, you know, or relationship, obviously, that transfer into the photos, definitely. Was there a point where it was kind of like, put that camera away, this is too, Intimate. No, I don't think no, so. No, I don't really no. remember that. I could always tell when something wasn't appropriate. Like, if, you know, if she was flipping out and throwing things against the wall, I wouldn't be there taking pictures of it, you know. That's too bad. Yeah. You do let it all hang out a little bit in some of these photos. This is a photo of the apartment that you stayed at. I think it was in the Bowery, and it looks like a hurricane hit it. Well, we're just sloppy, you know. It's, both of us are borderline hoarders, and, and we have maintained that lifestyle. Is that right? Yes. Well, hoarders, yes. What, what do you hoard? I don't know if we were truly hoarders. Well, but we didn't have enough money for any really yeah, good stuff. You we, know? Didn't have, we couldn't buy stuff. We had to find it, you know? So we're talking about aesthetics. We're talking about art and photography. Inevitably, it makes me think about your band, which was very aesthetically driven. You had the, the guys in dark suits, Debbie wearing whatever she's rocking that day with her blonde hair kind of in contrast. Tell me about creating the aesthetics of the band. There was very little preconception with anything that went into Blondie, including what we looked like. And certainly the guys were all drawn to the mod look, the mod aesthetic for the, from the UK, you know? Well, you say certainly, but that's not obvious, especially at the time you've got the Ramones running around in jeans yeah. and leather jackets. It seems like a choice. Yeah, well, yeah, but we, that was just what everybody liked. You know, when I grew up, you know, seeing the Rat Pack and James Bond with all the tailored suits with the thin lapels and everybody was rebelling against the wide lapels that were had come out of the disco era in the 70s so we were all attracted to narrow lapels and it just happened that you all just showed up one day and you're all wearing dark suits no i think that you know it was a bit organized you know having to present an image it was easy to achieve it was easy to buy these things cheaply because th nobody wore them there was so you could find of, them was, in junk stores there was a lot you know? of really great stuff from the 60s available in the early and mid 70s yeah which has all been long absorbed yeah well now it's worth hundreds and thousands yeah, in some cases crazy, of yeah. dollars you know I, I remember the first time we came out here to you know, la yeah to la and we played at the whiskey and the first time we went to the whiskey there was a party going on for this band called the Hollywood Stars. 
And these guys were like the old guard, and they all had scarves and bell bottoms, and you know, and that was kind of the end of an era. I don't know what happened to the Hollywood stars, but then we started playing there with the suits and the ties and stuff. And over the course of several weekends, we noticed all the kids in the audience were showing up with suits and ties and yeah. etc. And then that's where, and suddenly you have bands like the Knack. What did that, actually? What did that feel like? Because you're you're doing something that's very unusual. Both of you are wearing you know outfits that were kind of unusual for the era, and then people start aping you. I think the Knack came along a lot later. Yeah. So we didn't have to have them killed. <laughs> That's nice. I think we found it flattering at yeah, first. It's just like maybe the, most of the theft came later with lots of blonde girls fronting bands. But <laughs> This actually, uh, this is a question I wanted to ask you, by the way. I know, I'm told that a big no-no is to refer to you, Debbie, as Blondie. The band is Blondie. You are not Blondie. Yeah. Everybody calls me Blondie, and actually I came up with the name Yeah. because I had bleached my hair and it became obvious yeah sure but it just seemed you know inappropriate for me to take title to the name we we all shared in the corporation but this must have caused some friction eventually because you are you're the only blonde member in the group so people must I have told thought them it was to bleach you. their hair I yeah. tried in the very beginning I said I right, everybody should bleach their hair but do you, re- do you no. know what the, do you know what the hullabaloo's no. were do you remember a band named the hullabaloo's I don't all right google that okay they all had like really long ass blonde hair and were very weird looking. Did you not want to look like them? Is that the Maybe idea? it was that they had a very odd And the wrestlers used to always bleach their hair. <laughs> yeah. That's you know? true, you don't mind. Yeah, Ric yeah. Flair, man. So, Come on. Ric Flair. Oh no, it was Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George long before, before that, yeah, yeah, sure. Gorgeous George would have been a good name though. Gorgeous George would be a good name for a band, yeah. Debbie Harry and Chris Stein of Blondie. Soon to be gorgeous George. You never know. Chris's photo exhibit is on display at the Paul Smith store in L.A. through May 24th. You'll find more of that interview at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. This weekend, comedian Maz Jabrani speaks at an art summit at the Kennedy Center alongside Spike Lee and Ai Weiwei. His new book is called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, this is comedian Maz Jobrani, And here's a story I want to tell you from the book that I think you will like. Early on in my career, one of my biggest goals was to become a regular comedian at the world-famous comedy store on Sunset Strip, People like Jay Leno, David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, Eddie Murphy, who was my comedy hero, had gone through this club. To become a regular at the comedy store, you have to audition in front of the owner, who is Mitzi Shore, Polly Shore's mother. A lot of my material dealt with being Iranian-American. And there weren't any Middle Eastern comedians at the comedy store. So I think Mitzi had seen me and was taking a liking to me. But you don't talk to her until the very, very end of this auditioning process. And the way it works is you perform on a Sunday night in front of a crowd that's there to see open mic night. Mitzi sits in the back of the room watching you. The room is very dark. She's seated in the last chair right next to the exit. As you walk off the stage, you have to pass Mitzi to get out of the club. Now, if she lets you go, that means you're not a regular and you leave miserable. But if she grabs your arm, that means that you're gonna become a regular. So here I am, I finished my last 10 minutes. I felt like I did a good job. I'm walking off stage. I'm about to walk out the exit. I'm thinking, oh no, she's gonna let me go. And then she grabs my arm. She leans into my ear and she goes, 
you're very funny. Because that's how Mitzi talks. And I go, thank you, Mitzi. She goes, I'm going to make you a regular. I go, thank you, Mitzi. But she keeps holding on to me. And she goes, have you ever thought about wearing the outfit? And I go, uh, what outfit? You know, the outfit, the hat and the gown. And I was like, the hat and the gown? And I go, oh, my God. She wants me to wear a turban on stage and a dishtasha. How am I going to compromise my values? How am I going to compromise my people and sell myself out? I turned to her, I said, Mitzi, yes, I will definitely wear the outfit. And I walk out, and now I'm a little ambivalent about what just happened, because part of me is excited, I just became a regular, but I also just agreed to wear a turban on stage. It could be the end of my career. So I called the booker, I knew her, her name was Corey. I go, what happens if I don't wear the outfit? And she was like, do I really have to tell you? Which basically meant you won't be getting any spots at the club. But she goes, listen, Mitzi has had a hand in a lot of people's careers. She helped Roseanne Barr shop for her outfits and create the character that she created. Uh, later on, when I was telling people this story, I come to realize that people like Mark Marin, she told him to wear a scarf. She thought he was like the poet comedian. And then there was another guy whose name was Joey Banana. You go, Joey who? And I go, exactly. This was a comedian who, during his set, used to just put on a banana outfit, and he's never been heard of since. So I'm like, okay, I got to get out of this turban thing somehow. And then, light bulb. I remembered there'd been an Iranian performer who used to make fun of the mullahs in Iran. And he used to wear a turban. And at some event, I heard some people showed up that supported the mullahs, and they threw a rock at him, and they blinded him in one eye. So I called up Corey. I said, Corey, I'm ready to wear the outfit. I'm ready to go. But if I do, I just want to let you know that somebody might show up and try to take me out. And worse, they may try to take out the comedy store. Corey was like, um, let me call you back in five minutes. So obviously she hung up and called Mitzi. She called me back five minutes later. She goes, uh, you know what? Forget the outfit. Just put on something comfortable. You'll be good to go. <laughs> it wasn't until years later when I ran into Mitzi again, who was, by the way, very supportive of my career. And she goes, um, by the way, you were supposed to wear the outfit. The moral of the story is Mitzi Shore never forgets. Mr. with a story adapted from his new book, I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, it's springtime in New York, uh, which means new shows on Broadway, walks in Central Park, and Knish. Hmm. These would be the, the doughy snacks with the potatoes and stuff inside That of is correct. That is that's spring-like to you? <laughs> well, in Central Park, near a little pond, there's a food stand called Knish Knosh. Mm. And when the weather is nice, you can sit outside, drink a glass of wine, and eat a Knish. Oh, that sounds pastoral and fattening it's, as well. well. Some of those things. So the other day I met with Laura Silver, author <laughs> of a book about Knish, and I first asked her to describe these little bites of Jewish soul food. Imagine a lovingly wrapped hunk of onion spice potatoes in this cradle of a thin dough. 
that's very friendly, portable, and usually not too expensive. It's one of these kind of uh, peasant kind of foods that fill the stomach quickly and cheaply. Exactly. They fill the stomach and the gut in the bigger sense. I believe that sense of being full also rises up to the heart. Yeah, you talk, so you talk a lot in this book about the role of the Canadian culture and to Jewish culture in particular. One story I, I enjoyed was a woman talking about her new daughter-in-law, and she was afraid that her daughter-in-law was going to make her son too snobby. And then tell what, what happened that made her feel like things are going to be okay. Well, because she baked knishes, that was the um, barometer of her okayness. She's like, no one who cooks a knish can be stuck up. Exactly. If you cook a knish, you're a real person. And the other thing about the knish is, practically speaking, it's a, to get to make a knish, it's not a delicate process. It's like you're really working the dough, you're making the potatoes, you're chopping onions. It's, it's labor-intensive. Right. It takes time to make knishes. Yeah. And I think it takes intention. You need some space. The tradition talked about making a tablecloth of dough. So imagine rolling a sheet of dough that wide and thin. Something thin enough you could read a newspaper through, or my book. Nice plug. I can help myself. Sorry, your book is an exhaustive exploration of the Kanish. Where does it first show up? Well, the Kanish first appears in literature in 1614 in a Polish poem that comes from a town in modern-day Ukraine. I'm not convinced that the Kanish was inherently Jewish back in 1614 because I found later instances of the Kanish being used for mourning rituals in the Christian and Catholic tradition. But I have identified a Kanish, a, a historic Kanish corridor, which extends from modern day Lithuania through Poland, Bialystok, um, Belarus, and parts of Ukraine. Now, you may be thinking that corresponds with the Pale of Settlement where Jews were, and that's true. But this is a subsection. Often on our show, we'll do a profile of like a new food item or like an old food item coming back, like a kolache in Texas, which is filled with meat or which is kind of a cousin a of this. Kanishin cousin. Kolache is a Kanishin cousin. It's a Kanishin Kinesh, cousin. There's so many puns to be had here. But I feel like the Kanish hasn't really had been part of this food renaissance. Well, um, there is a guy in California who's making knishes in flavors like wasabi and white chocolate. He has a curried beef in there. He did a St. Patty's Day knish. So there's a lot of innovation to be had. But the knish, I think, is getting ready for its full-fledged renaissance. You think it's right on the cusp of returning? Exactly. Can we say it's right on the knusp? No. <laughs> you draw the line there? I, you know, a pun has to be, it has to be earned. <laughs> okay. I thought that was, I thought, okay, you're right. Okay. Let's taste the knish here. You have the kasha, I have the potato. They're beautiful. They're like big, big hockey pucks, overstuffed hockey pucks. Exactly. They're like, it's like a stuffed animal. Uh, not an animal, a stuffed vegetable. <laughs> we can't eat a stuffed animal. No, no, but it, it has the coziness of a teddy bear. It does. It does look kind of cozy. This, what's so great about this is the dough is thin and you almost feel like you're eavesdrop. You're like um, a voyeur looking into the inside of it. And That's that, true. It's like very sheer. It's sheer. It's kind of sexy now that we talk right. about it. Right. It's, you know, it's great. It's hefty yet sexy. Does it get better? <laughs> well, let's give them a taste here. And it's very good. It feels like this would, if I eat one of these, I would feel fortified for the day. Exactly. And this has such great onions. And um, you don't need a lot to feel good. Talk about something directly right now. The knish, this is not health food. This is very heavy food. Knish is not light. But you can have a cocktail knish. When I saw cocktail knish in your book, I thought it was going to be like filled with booze, but it's actually like cocktail hot dogs. Well, if anyone can create a knish filled with booze, it's a dinner party download. A gin and tonic knish, that would be great. Well, it's like those little chocolate bottles with cognac inside. We could do the same with a knish. <laughs> when did you fall in love with the knish? It, the knish was just something I took for granted till my favorite shop went out of business. 
in um, 2005 or so. But I'd say a real, the obsessive love affair began around then because then it became a quest. Something I loved was endangered and gone and I had to figure out what happened and then suddenly I had to know everything about it. And I'd say the biggest discovery was the fact that my maternal grandmother was actually born in a Polish town called Knishin. Destiny. Exactly. Kinestiny. No, there's a Yiddish word that corresponds called Beshert. It's like, this is your fate. I was a direct descendant of the Kanish. Are there any Kanish puns you approve of? Kano. <laughs> Lara Silver, her book is called Kanish in Search of the Jewish Soul Food. Yay. Also, keep your ears peeled for my new goth klezmer album, Kanish Me, Kanish Me, Kanish Me. <laughs> You had to fit another in there. I certainly did. You're like an addict. Kind of. All right, coming up, filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg and trashy etiquette advice from a kid TV icon when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we hear a new song from Niger-based band Tal National. And in a few minutes, Oscar-nominated filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg talks about going down in flames. I tried at some point to be a career pilot, but I crashed. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. And this week, we confess we made kind of an etiquette error ourselves. That's right. Uh, Yeah, see, we invited Carol Spinney to our studios. His name you might not know, but his work you surely do. For 45 years, he has been the voice behind and the man inside Sesame Street's Big Bird. He also performs Oscar the Grouch. There's a sweet new documentary about Carol out this week called I Am Big Bird. But after chatting with him about it for a bit, we impolitely asked if he could let us speak with someone else. Here's the tape. Well, Carol, it's been great talking to you. But we asked our audience to send in etiquette questions for Oscar. Oh, oh. And, and he seems like just the guy for the job. Totally. Are you ready for that, Oscar? Hand it to me. Are you ready for them? <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there he is. Hi, Oscar. Wow, it smells like trash in here all of a sudden. Here's our first question. This is from Jenny in Washington, D.C. Okay. And Jenny says, My roommate and I are both busy during the week and don't have much time to clean. So on the weekends, I make a point to sweep our floors. But in the past year, my roommate has basically stopped helping with this. Two weeks ago, I said, wow, hope we don't get ants. But she didn't take the hint and still isn't sweeping. How do I bring this up with her? Mm. Well, uh, Jenny, sounds like uh, you have a perfect roommate to me. (laughs) Besides, what's wrong with ants? Boy, are you picky. Picky, picky, picky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can Jenny's roommate move in with you, Oscar, in your trash can? uh, uh, Yeah, there's a lot of room. All right. The next question comes from Tom in Pittsburgh. And Tom writes, Oscar, given your up-and-down relationship with the character of Grungetta, do you have any relationship advice for those in less than perfect relationships? <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. I can relate it to myself. Uh, Grangetta and I haven't seen each other in years, you know? Mm. And for us, <laughs> absence makes the heart grow fonder. Like complete absence. Out of sight, out of mind. Try Man. them both. See which one works best. Uh, Oscar, you have such glee when you deliver this advice. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go, Tom. So just ignore. Shoot the next one. Ignore yeah. your significant other. Here's something from Liz in New Haven, Connecticut. Liz writes, and this kind of goes back to something you mentioned earlier, Oscar. What is the most people you should invite over to a party at a small studio apartment? This is perfect for you since your trash can is barely big enough for yourself. Yeah, well, 
Let me see. How did I tell you this? Uh, I hate parties, so <laughs> oh, I wouldn't invite say. anyone over. <laughs> but if I had to, I'd invite way more people than I could fit into the apartment <laughs> because that would make everybody really grouchy. <laughs> very, I like that. Very uncomfortable. Wow. And don't serve them yeah, any food yeah. or drinks. No, no, no. That's how we live in New York, though. And then, Well, this is, uh, this is New York. <laughs> yeah. It's a full of people like you, Oscar. All right. Th- that's your answer, Liz. Invite tons of people so they can all be grouchy. Perfect. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, please don't send an invitation to me. Our next question comes from Re- Rebecca. She sent it via Facebook. Rebecca writes... What's the proper etiquette when one has social plans but is feeling grouchy? Should one cancel, go out and pretend to make the best of it, or go out and let my inner grouch run free? Wow, yeah, kind of question. Yeah, okay. Well, I want to make a good – This, I'll be serious on this one, okay? Okay, all right, thanks. Yeah, since my social plans would all involve being with grouches – I'd go and let the grouches run free. Yes. <laughs> I think you answered your own question there, Rebecca. Yeah. But Rebecca is the one guest who's gotten an actual answer from the grouch. So well done, Rebecca. <laughs> nice job. And, and, and what, Rebecca, don't ever thank me. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Don't send right. a card, please. Here's a question from uh, everyone in America. This is our standard question we ask uh, everyone who does our etiquette segment. What is the most memorable get-together you've ever been to, Oscar? Uh, let me think of a good answer here. <laughs> Since it's America I'm talking to. Yeah. The most memorable get-together for me was my Grouch family reunion at Swamp Mushy Muddy. Oh. Swamp oh. Mushy Muddy. Swamp Mushy Muddy. It's icky and yucky and cruddy. <laughs> yeah, it, it rained the whole time, uh-huh. so we were all soaked. We oh. sloshed around in the mud, and it was the best time ever. <laughs> were there mosquitoes? So uh, try to duplicate it for yourself. And you'll be as miserable as me. And there you go. Wow. <laughs> Head to the swamp. See, it doesn't surprise me that Oscar the Grouch would like a family reunion, an occasion that is often uncomfortable <laughs> and where people act grouchy. That seems perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, you also like traffic jams. And... Oh, yeah. Anything to feed the grouch. That's right. Yeah. Well, Oscar, thank you so much for answering. Never our... thank a grouch. All right. Sorry. No, thank you. Yeah, whatever, thanks, Oscar. Thanks for nothing. I've never liked you. you that know? was yeah, terrible. Yeah, we've never liked you either. If you see Carol, tell him we didn't like him either. Don't, t- don't say that. He might cry. Get off our show. Oscar. Okay. Hey, I'm going to like this guy. Sesame Street's Oscar the Grouch. Coincidentally, there is a movie out now about the puppeteer who voices Oscar the Grouch ah. and Big Bird. It's called I Am Big Bird, The Carol Spinney Story. You know, I never realized how much in common I had with Oscar the Grouch until we did that segment. <laughs> oh, I did. I was well aware. <laughs> well, folks, if bad behavior makes you grumpy, send your etiquette questions to us and we'll find a human or a puppet to answer them. Hmm. You can reach us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and click contact. Or tweet your question at dinnerpartydnld. Danish filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg first got international attention in the mid-90s when he and his countryman Lars von Trier created the Dogma 95 film movement. His movie Celebration, filmed in the gritty Dogma style, won the jury prize at Cannes. In 2012, his film The Hunt earned its star Mads Mikkelsen the Best Actor Award at Cannes, and it was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. His new movie is an adaptation of Thomas Hardy's classic novel, Far From the Matting Crowd. It stars Carrie Mulligan as Bathsheba Everdeen, an independent Victorian-era woman who's pursued by three very different men. 
In this clip, she's just inherited a farm, and she lays down the law to her employees. From now on, you have a mistress, not a master. I don't yet know my talents in farming, but I shall do my best. Don't suppose because I'm a woman I don't know the difference between bad goings-on and good. I shall be up before you are awake. I shall be afield before you are up. It is my intention to astonish you all. Back to work, please. And Thomas, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Were you familiar with the book or the story before reading the script? Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Hardy is not on the Danish curriculum. Uh, <laughs> what? What's going on over there? <laughs> what, what happens in Denmark? Uh, I knew of Thomas Hardy, and but I hadn't read the book. I just got a script from my agent, and I fell in love with it. The way Thomas Hardy plays, and David Nichols, the scriptwriter, plays around with fate, I found very attractive and encouraging. And What do you mean by that, actually? I've, I've heard you say that fate is something that's of interest to you. Well, here's some people trying to get control over their lives, but it seems that it, it's going the other way. They meet in the wrong places at the wrong time. They send mm -hmm. the wrong Valentine's cards uh, <laughs> that send people into death or prison. That's true. Bathsheba sends a very ill-considered Valentine's card. Yeah. So I guess that's what Hardy does a lot. What is that? Why are you attracted to that, though? What... I, I guess it's, we all try to control ourselves through lives. And sometimes you just can't. Sometimes it wins over you. And yes, I'm scared of that, and I'm interested in that. There was there was this guy saying to me once that when you start planning your life, that's where God really starts to laugh. And I thought that was interesting. Do you feel like you've planned your career? I mean, it, to judge this film compared to some of your early films is just completely different. Do you feel like you just kind of fell into it? Well, I, I tried at some point to be a career pilot, but I crashed <laughs> pretty hard. Uh, so since then, I've just been navigating through my heart, really. I know that sounds a bit much but but that's what i'm trying to do what was the um, crash well let's not go there <laughs> <laughs> i have a question i'll but, ask you later no, about the question i'm not supposed to ask you i think we may have just stumbled upon it no but the thing is that when, if you make your choices from the heart with a bit of nonchalance it seems to be right like reading the script there was this extra thing happening in my head the spark of a kind this chemical reaction where i i, I just couldn't leave the thought of doing it Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it, it's a bit like falling in love or something. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it becomes three-dimensional and it stays with you. And that's what I'm pursuing. I, I guess it's, it has to do with human fragility and vulnerability. These are definitely fragile characters. Although, here, I'm going to go out on a limb here as a public radio host and admit I hadn't read the book. Your film is actually my first introduction to this story. Oops, so you haven't even seen the Schlesinger film? Uh, no, I have not even seen the earlier film by John Schlesinger. Which I haven't either. <laughs> that was probably wise as the director of, a, of another film on the same source material. But I was surprised at how strong a female character that you have in this story, set as it is in Victorian England. Some consider this book an early feminist novel. Oh, yeah. Having done some films rather filled up with testosterone lately, and also having been blamed for that, <laughs> I thought this was a great opportunity to explore the other sex for a moment. And um, I, I think he's done an, an incredibly modern portrait of a woman, even though it's 140 years old. The complexity of wanting to be independent and strong and have a career, and yet still having this urge to devote to a man, I think is beautifully portrayed in, in this novel and uh, was definitely one of the main attractions for me. Um, this is especially visually a far cry from the movie that put you on the map, Celebration, 
which was intentionally very low-budget, handheld cameras, kind of gritty. This is lush, romantic. There's lots of sweeping vistas and emotive soundtrack music, but you seem right at home in that world. Did that surprise you? I guess I am, to some degree, a romantic fool, which can be difficult to see in my earlier work. But see, um, Dogma 95, the celebration, was an effort to find a purity in the way of filming. We sort of tried to undress the film, right? Yeah. For those who don't know, the, the Dogma 95 movement was based on these rules that filmmakers agreed to that were supposed to restrict them from using fancy filmmaking technology, basically. Exactly. But that itself became very fashionable overnight in Cannes in 98. Yeah. So suddenly that was no longer such a big revolt. And I've been pursuing that purity in other ways. And I think we have in this film as well. Even though it's horses and costumes and a lot of sheep, um, <laughs> we I've, I've been trying to get pure as and open as possible. But does the film world need another shakeup, something like Dogma? Like, what do you imagine the next film revolution will be? I don't know what the next revolution will be. We definitely need revolutions as as often as possible. Filmmaking, I guess, is the most conservative art form. Really, and I think so because it's so industrialized and because there's so much careerism involved with this. Mm. A lot of the independent movies, they're, they're just applications for the Hollywood system, <laughs> Yeah, really. The real art artistic courage is rare. So shake-ups would be very welcome. I don't know where they would come from. Did I'd you... love to participate in it. <laughs> but, but it has to come from the right place. It has to come from somewhere deep and not just, you know, some smart, self-obsessed idea of something. What do you think is the... Uh, ingredients that let dogma work well there was a need for it there was a tired sense of conventionalism in movie making of that time also in my own and i, I you'll never get lars to admit that but i think he felt the same thing <laughs> so there was an urge inside of us and there was a, a welcoming around us it was needed and, and it was fun it was great fun how arrogant it may have, have looked we, we, we were just some playful little kids having really great fun it is true there was a, at the beginning of the celebration there's actually a certificate certifying that this is a dogma 95 thing you're almost playing with the idea of something revolutionary we did we did it took us half an hour to write those rules <laughs> and it worked uh all right we have two questions that we ask on this show and the first one I mentioned earlier, what question, if we were to meet you at a party, should we not ask you? Hmm. I've got plenty of those. Uh, Pick one. Well, where should I start? Something very embarrassing? Mm. Try, try something. I'm surprised that it isn't, you know, asking you about dogma. Well, I've, I've um, surrendered to it, and I actually enjoyed it so much. So I enjoy talking about it. The question that I'm beginning to get tired of is what happened right after. Oh, after Dogma yes. kind of ended? And now you're going to ask that question. <laughs> you, you love to go into those painful... You're on to our trick. I got you there. Well, okay, so... Um, you don't what have happened to... After... Well, let me tell you then. Doing that film, The Celebration, I felt I had completed something. I had gone down a road that I, where I couldn't come further down. And I had to find a complete new way of thinking. And that confused me. And the whole success part of it confused me because suddenly there was too many opportunities. Ironically, it's liberating when you frame yourself, when you limit yourself. Sure. So that was very, a, a very painful but also very adventurous time. It's all about love. The film that I did right after Celebration with Joaquin Phoenix and Claire Danes, it, it's very dear to me. It, it, I think it's the richest film I've done. But I, I seem to be quite alone thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here's our second question which is tell us something we don't know. 
And this can mm. be about anything. Uh, I yodel really well. Uh, really? That's something people don't know. No, what, what, I don't know what to tell you. Do you seriously yodel? I'm pretty good at yodeling. Would you please yodel for our radio audience? <laughs> Is that pretty good? Filmmaker and vocalist Thomas Vinterberg. His adaptation of Far From the Madding Crowd is in theaters now. Enrico, every time I see that movie title, I want to say maddening, you know? Mm, yes. But I did a bunch of research and... Google, of course. A couple seconds on Google. Nice. And I learned the word madding is synonymous with maddening. So why didn't Thomas Hardy just use maddening? Uh, I don't know, because it's maddening. He was British a long time ago. Yeah. I think that's the answer. Totally. Folks, we hope you're not mad that this episode of the Dinner Party Download has come to an end. Jackson Musker produces our show. Nina Patak our associate producer. And Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Engineering this week from Garrett Lang and Daniel Ramirez. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Town National is a band from Niger, West Africa's largest nation. Their new album is called Zoi Zoi, and you're about to hear a track from it called Claire. And if you dig it, head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, where we have a video premiere of Tao performing the album's title track. Check it out. And bon appétit. Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. And now, the Dogma 95 version. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. We should really do this in Danish.